Well, it is no understatement to say I am just pleased to be back in the Word of God with you, getting into a preaching rhythm again in the Gospel of Matthew. And I would invite you to turn there now in Matthew's Gospel, looking in at chapter 8. And this message is titled, hopefully a title that will be of interest to you. It is Consider the Cost. Consider the Cost. It's a borrowed title, but it is talking directly to Christ giving very hard, potent, dramatic, and meaningful statements that he gives throughout the gospel and gives throughout his gospels that are meant to draw people to a crossroad, to a decision point to say, am I going to truly follow Jesus all the way or walk away and not follow him at all? There's a whole lot of celebrity pastors out there who are drawing all kinds of people with a candy-coated message where they are promising a life of comfort, not even a life of opulence or great riches or wealth, but a life of comfort and ease with Jesus. And Jesus has none of that with what he says over and over again is the cost of discipleship. Considering the cost, what does it mean to sign up and truly align yourself with Jesus Christ, to pledge allegiance to Christ and to do so in a culture today. We've been learning about the healing ministries of Jesus. Jesus came to earth and preached a hard message but gave tender, loving compassion over and over again by healing people, helping people, serving people. He, as we've seen, healed a leper, crossed the lines of the ceremonial law and reached out and touched someone with disease, made his flesh whole. The centurion slave, someone aligned with a government that was against Christ and healed the centurion slave with a word. Also went into Peter's mother-in-law, went into Peter's house, healed his mother-in-law, Without any crowds, without any accolades, without any affirmation from the crowds. He just did it in the intimacy of home and fellowship there. She was raised up and she served. And then word got out, which opened up an all-night healing ministry in Peter's house where he healed everyone. Thousands came in that city of Capernaum outside of the Sea of Galilee. Droves came. This was heaven on earth. Heaven came down and he healed everyone, made everyone whole on that night, on that occasion. It's a window and picture of heaven casting out all demonic activity. Every demon was cast out on that evening. Now, these are miracles. There were nine miracle moments documented through this gospel, and we'll see them all, but There is a miracle that is not stated as such that is equally supernatural, something that we as believers all have participated in. It's the miracle of conversion. Anyone who was dead spiritually and has been brought to life spiritually has experienced this miracle. We've been changed. We've been born again. It's amazing. It is a miracle. It is God's grace in our lives. And it's been said that Matthew's conversion is on par with all of these miracle accounts. And the reason it's put on par in that way is because of his occupation, what he was saved out of. Matthew was a tax collector. 
a tax collector. You say, well, why is that so offensive? Well, just think of the worst of the worst in terms of a Ponzi scheme artist who is uh, undermining people's wealth, bilking the system for his own personal gain, serving as someone who's an who's a outsider of uh, being loyal to the Jews, showing his loyalty to Rome, positioning himself at a crossroad place at the top port end of the north port, port of the Sea of Galilee, where people would be coming down from Damascus, from the Orient, going east or west, and he's sitting right there at that unique spot, seated at a table, taking everyone's money. And not out of a righteous, you know, taxing, but gouging people of their wealth, hurting people, filled with arrogance. If you look at Matthew 9, we're going to skip ahead. I won't preach this yet, but I do want to call attention to his conversion. It says in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He's sitting there. Now, he's in charge of this outfit, in charge of this setting. He could have delegated away. He could have stood back, but he wanted to sit at the table. That's why it's explicitly stated there. He wanted to lean in with the chin and grin at everyone as he took their money. So when Jesus showed up and said, follow me, and Matthew's heart was changed, everyone would have gasped. Everyone would have been in awe of This death to life moment, this person who's leaving this kind of gain, this kind of scheme for to follow Christ. I mean, following Christ as a tax collector meant that the door of your occupation was closing behind you. If you work for the government, the Roman government, and you left that seat, it was immediately filled and you were going back. If you're a fisherman, you could drop your nets for a while, follow Jesus, lose interest and go back to the fishing trade. But uh, Luke's gospel that parallels this in Luke 5, 28, it says he was leaving everything and he rose and followed him. Leaving everything. It was very costly. You say, well, how does this relate to us today? Well, let's say you're called upon to sign something where you're affirming the LBGTQ movement plus movement. Let's say you're um, signing on to say you're going to be not saying anything about Christ or the gospel on the job because that is considered as hate speech, what are you going to do? What are, what are we going to do? We don't know. We don't know where things are headed, but our jobs could be on the line. So we, we need to hear from Jesus this morning a hard statement about what we've signed up for. We need that for our own examination, but we need it for our invigoration to say, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. This is authentic Christianity. This is real Christianity. And it's what some of the coming persecution that we've seen around the world even um, drives us to. It's driving us to think about these things. Even all that's happening in Afghanistan where the Taliban is heating things up. And then our news about a week or so ago, I was just reading some, something on my news feed that said, well, you know, the Taliban, we're, we're, the jury's still out as to, po- as to whether they're really truly evil. I mean, they're doing everything they can do, and, and they're doing it in accordance with Sharia law and their holy book. And, you know, just these kinds of concessions are being made. What is that going to mean for Christians? What is that going to mean for we who are following the truth and the true holy book where things are turned upside down here in the culture? 
We trust Christ. We follow him even if the cost of discipleship is high. We need a hard statement from Christ so that we know whom we are truly following. Go back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 and look at verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, True teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What we have here is a hard test to expose hearts. We have hard tests that expose what has been called half faith, which is no faith at all. What we're finding is two people here who are coming to make extraordinary claims, the scribe in particular giving a vow of full allegiance to Christ, and Jesus gives a hard test to see if that's even real at all. You have two public exchanges here between two people, a scribe and then one who is called explicitly a disciple. They're both called disciples, but you have a scribe and a disciple, and Christ gives hard sayings to expose their motivation. So I'm calling these two that come to Christ would-be disciples, would-be disciples. Are they real or are they not? The first is a scribe, and we're introduced to him in verse 18. It says, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe, verse 19, came up and said, to him. Stop there. This has been a healing service, just to give the context again, all evening long. Jesus is getting his head up out of all that he's been doing. Probably the dawn is breaking. And though he's fully God, he's operating fully as man in reliance to the Holy Spirit while he's God. That's the mystery we just sang about. But nevertheless, Jesus is exhausted. And he's saying, let's go to the other side. Let's get in the boat. I'm giving a directive. Let's get in the boat and go to the other side. He doesn't know he's going to be met with all kinds of ministry and demoniacs on the other side in Gennesaret. However, Jesus is saying, let's go there. And as he um, calls people to go over there, Mark's gospel says that people were beginning to load in boats. Jesus is met with two people, first a scribe. And he's pushing to go to the other side and people are pushing on him to say, but I want something from you. I want, I want a connection with you. And Jesus isn't against the swarming crowd, but at the same time, he's identifying some possible consumer mindedness here that he wants to vet. It's on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and the crowd was pressing and so Jesus pressed back. Mark 4, 36, people are loading in boats. A scribe comes up and he says, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow you and I'll follow you no matter where. Just like Peter had said to him or would say to him. Does he truly want to follow Jesus? Well, what he says is very compelling. Teacher, which is the highest praise a scribe, by the way, could give Jesus 
Jesus is a non-conformist, non-traditionalist, a breaking all of the scribal traditions and all of the scribal legalism that they purport. A scribe, by the way, was a master of the law, a master teacher of the law, the one who was setting the traditions in place that Jesus kept breaking and imploding. This scribe was obviously defecting from the scribal clan, saying, Rabbi, I'm going to go to you. I'm, I'm leaving my religious sect, and I'm calling you rabbi, teacher. This is the name that had been given to Nicodemus, the teacher of all of Israel, the great teacher. This scribe is attributing this to Christ. Was he doing it out of kind of a self-service attitude? He had just seen all these people made whole, and the miracle ministry was everywhere. All of Capernaum was there. Thousands were there. Just think of that. This was not just a little home group event. This was a, a massive sort of newsworthy full Capernaum around Galilee event. Similar to like it would be like a public version of the transfiguration had taken place. So this scribe is saying, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Now, there's nothing in the text to indicate that he wanted healing, that he wanted a quid pro, pro quo effect. Hey, I'll do this if you do that. But he's at the same time making a very extraordinary public commitment. I don't think he wanted to be zapped by Jesus. I think he wanted to be affirmed by Jesus. Jesus had no religious pedigree. Jesus was breaking all of the scribal tradition. Jesus, uh, though, was fascinating to this scribe. The scribe was saying, I'll cross this sea and prove my allegiance to you. So did he mean it? In Matthew 26, Peter, in verse 33 and 35, makes the same claim. I'll follow you. I'll go wherever you want me to go, even unto death. And Peter meant it when he said it. I think the scribe meant it when he said it. Hey, we don't know ourselves, right? We don't, we don't know our own hearts. We say things. We mean things on a level. We say, I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll give everything to you, Jesus. Do we really mean it? Well, time and truth go hand in hand and the tests come and the statements are made and test whether we truly mean it, right? Sure, he meant it on a level. This man was enthralled with Jesus. And let me just say, being enthralled with Jesus, it's natural, but it's also very dangerous without a full commitment to Jesus. So Jesus is answering this public vow with a very hard truth. He's He's, he's just meeting it with the wall of commitment. What do you really mean by what you have just said? Look at this pledge of allegiance. I will follow you wherever you go. If you heard somebody from the, the waters of baptism say that, we'd stand up and cheer. But that should cause us to ponder what is real commitment? What does it really mean to genuinely follow Jesus? Well, let's look at what Jesus says it means. Verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' example and life was given to itinerant ministry. He's not saying that you have to be homeless to follow Jesus. We're he was just meeting in Peter's home. Peter owned a home. It's not wrong to own something. 
But Jesus at the same time is saying, look at me. To follow me, to identify with me means that you're holding everything with an open hand. Your, your life's goals are not homes and things and possession. Uh, someone said to me this week, it's like our lives are given um, to being like a sieve that we're pouring it through to Jesus as opposed to a container that we're pouring ourselves into to consume and to have. There's a different mindset. It's the mindset of the suffering servant of Christ. Look at verse 17. Remember, he had just quoted the fact that Isaiah and Isaiah 53, Matthew had quoted to, to mark Jesus's life as the one who took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's what Jesus was always busy about, always serving the Lord, the kingdom of God, helping. That's the heart posture of a true follower of Jesus. So property ownership is brought up here. Jesus, according to the debated passage um, in Scripture, John seven fifty three to 8, 1, says after they had dispute with the blind man, everyone went home. People all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is seen again and again as praying all night, living outside and communing with the Father. And yet he did have places to go and homes and he was... His ministry needs were met. So there's a balance, but as Alfred Plummer puts it, Jesus' life began in a borrowed stable and ended in a borrowed tomb. That's Jesus. That's, that's the attitude that we're supposed to have as believers. So much of our lives is gaining and, and getting a paycheck and applying it to bills and, and, and making ends meet and saving money for the future. But there has to be a balance, and I have to live that balance as well. I live in this world that you live in. I have these obligations. I think in this way. I am a responsible, bill-paying citizen. I get it. I pay my taxes. I do my due diligence in that way. But there has to be just a, an atmospheric bursting of that balloon where we see beyond the here and now and say we're living for a kingdom that is not of this world but is dynamically here as we give the gospel, live the gospel, that's what true faith looks like. Not making a whimsical promise, not making a camp commitment. We're publicly stating I'll follow. Our church today needs to hear this, that this kind of commitment is not enough. This is a would-be disciple. We don't have any clue as to whether or not this scribe genuinely believed or was more like the rich young ruler who once confronted, sell everything you have and follow me and that... Rich young ruler is going, no, I, I like my stuff, and I want Jesus and my stuff. I'm not willing to open hand, give it to the Lord as need be, and so he walked away sad. We don't know. The silence is kind of deafening over both of these engagements with these would-be disciples. But you say, if Jesus strips everything away from me on earth where I don't have a hole or a, a nest to go to, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, what does that mean? I mean, Jesus is not indicting idolatry here, the idol worship of wealth. He's not really indicting opulence. He's just saying, look, you have to go into a ministry mindset if you're going to follow me. Be willing to go and do and be wherever Jesus wants you to be. That's what it means to follow him. So what does that mean in terms of my family? Am I not supposed to have a house? Well, that's not what this 
is saying. It's saying, consider the cost of signing up in the Lord's army and that it is serious business to do it. Linsky said it this way, see the soldiers on parade. A person sees them, the fine uniforms and glittering arms and is eager to join, forgetting the exhausting marches, the bloody battles and the graves, perhaps unmarked. Explorer may recruit, according to William Barclay, many volunteers to go on expeditions until he explains the team will work in scorching heat, sub-zero climates, and sweltering swamps. Jesus was no celebrity pastor. Jesus was obviously kind of dressed as a commoner, but he wasn't a hipster. He wasn't trying to draw crowds out of false promises or superficial things that are temporary. He was the real deal. J.C. Ryle says, nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who's willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of their experience. He wrote that in the late 1800s, but applicable today. So how do we strike the balance of providing for our family and putting a roof over their heads and following Christ? Well, we do everything we do to the glory of God and we follow Christ and we do so that we'll take our family with us following Jesus. They want to see an authentic faith. A child can see right through your faith. A child can, in your home, see whether or not you're clinging to stuff and comfort and temporary ends or Jesus. Just ask them. We talked about that as a pastoral staff this week. Children see through us. They have x-ray vision into our own hearts. So I want to quickly touch on quickly the title that Jesus gives himself here just to fill this out. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Son of man. Jesus calls himself the son of man 83 times in the gospels. He's the one who self-titles himself with this. He's reaching back to the account in Ezekiel where Ezekiel is called the son of man to show that this great prophet was flesh and blood. Daniel prophetically looked forward seeing the end times when Jesus would return, the Messiah would come, and he saw a son of man in the clouds. And he said, this is going to be the one who is exalted, who's glorified, who's glorious in power and might, Daniel chapter 7. So which is it that Jesus is putting on display here when he says son of man? Is he expressing the humble humanity of Christ as a son of man or the exalted Lord? And the answer is yes, and both, <laughs> always. What Jesus is saying is, are you able to see through the Son of Man, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ? Do you see that? That's what it always is. Are you willing to see me for who I really am? Yes, I'm a humble servant. Coming here to serve and give my life a ransom for many, but I'm also the exalted King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the transcendent and glorious Warrior, I'm the lamb, but I'm the lion, the right hand of the father, exalted. That's who Jesus is. Well, this confrontation is met with another. One conversation leads to another. The scribe and this fellow disciple are probably talking to Jesus side by side. One is saying, look, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I'm in. I'm all in with you, Jesus. 
Jesus is saying, oh, really, are you? And then this other person says, well, okay, you've said that, but I need to take care of my family in another way. You're questioning household stability, which, by the way, there are whole Christian ministries built on family life and helping families and helping children and all of that. That pulls at the heartstrings, and we understand that. But that's really what's at stake. Is your first loyalty to Christ or the here and now, just in the mundane of this world? And so this second questioner ups the ante and says, It says, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So we have a scribe and now we have a disciple. It's another disciple. So they're both called disciples. They're they're both on the outside in the club. They're they're in the, the following of Jesus. But Jesus is unearthing this and exposing where they really are or are not. And another disciple is saying, well, can I at least go and bury my father before I follow you? You're saying I have to hold everything I have with an open hand. Am I supposed to hold my father with an open hand? Can I go back and do that? I mean, this brings up all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Because it seems like the most loyal and normal thing to do to take care of your father's burial. So we have to understand what this person was asking. And we have to understand Jesus' response because it's very strong in verse 22. This disciple was someone who was challenged, being challenged, just like the scribe. It didn't matter. And we really don't know the outcome, just like we don't know the outcome of the scribe. We don't know how this disciple responded to Jesus' statement. It's a hard statement. It's a harder statement than even the first. Follow me, verse 22, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What is Jesus saying here? Was this request unreasonable? Was Jesus being too harsh? Everything pivots and hinges on really understanding the question and understanding the response on a deeper level. First of all, the question. The question for him to go and bury his own father could have been taken in this way. It could be that he wasn't trying to say, my father has died. I have a tragic need to go back and bury him. He might have been saying, and the culture back then used this phrase of burying your dead father as in this way, I need to go back and my father wants me to join the family business so that I can serve there until he dies and then I can take over the family business and do all of that. Then I'll follow you, Jesus. That's a position widely taken by many Um, Barclay talks about um, this expression being used then and even in the Middle East today. A missionary asked a young Turkish man to go with him on a trip to Europe. During this time, the missionary hoped to disciple him. When the young man replied he must bury his father, the missionary offered sympathy and expressed surprise that his father had died. And the man explained, however, that his father was still alive and healthy. I just want to go back there first and do that before I follow you on the mission field. So this expression could be that... The disciple is just saying, look, I need to put a couple terms and conditions on what it means to follow you. I know the scribe says he's going to jump in the boat and go across the sea and follow you now, but I'll do it. I'll catch up, but I just need to stall for a little while. I need to finish out this course of action with the family business before I follow you, Jesus. 
It's a pretty good position to take, but I, I still tend to believe that in the immediate context that this person was coming up to Jesus with more of a desperate tone. Jesus had been healing all night, healing everyone, casting out demons, bringing people from near death to life. And by contrast, this person is going, you know, I know they claim you're the God of the living, but um, I need to deal with the death of my father and loved one before I follow you. This is more of a spiritual moment than a practical moment. This is a decision point where, where impulses are being raised by what Jesus has just done, exposing someone's heart. One who's making a camp promise saying, I'll follow you, I promise. And the other saying, uh, I'll follow you, but I'm going to postpone it. I got to deal with this first and then I'll go. It's a crossroads. Whether it was the long um, stall where you're going away to take care of the family business or a brief time where the person's going away and then saying, then I'll follow you, Jesus. In either case, it really doesn't matter. Jesus is saying, let's go, which is really a, a call to salvation. See it that way. Today is the day of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you truly will be saved. That's what he's saying. And this would-be disciple is saying, I'll follow you, but I'll follow you eventually. Eventually. He's confronting, Jesus is confronting inaction, indecision, lethargy, procrastination. That's what he's saying that he's seeing here. Jesus saw into hearts. John 2 tells us that people were wanting to give their hearts to Jesus and Jesus was withholding his heart because their hearts were not genuine in their profession. Happens all the time. In action, when Jesus is calling, when impulses are happening, inaction is a disaster. I still remember being a 17-year-old sitting in a truck uh, with my good friend. He was my best buddy from eighth grade all the way till senior year in high school. And we're sitting there and uh, it was early in the fall season, months before I was going to truly give my life to Christ. And I'm sitting there with him and we had this open discussion. We're sitting in his big, his dad's big blue truck. And it looked kind of like my Bronco with the bench seat and just sitting there in the sunshine and We had both been confronted in a series of messages from different youth pastors, and we were talking transparently about that and how we were stirred and feeling feeling called to give our lives fully to Christ and what that would mean. We didn't even know we were unsaved being raised in a Christian culture, but at the same time, we knew something was not complete. Something was not whole. We were still hanging on to the world And not fully given to Christ. And we literally in that moment made a pact to one another that we were going to wait until we were older to fully give our lives to Christ. Then it will make sense. But we're going to live it up right now. How foolish. And it wasn't long after that moment that we both were ushered into being saved, converted, born again. The Lord saved us graciously. The idea of ignoring moments of impulse when you are, as one person put it, moved to higher things. When you ignore that, that's flying in the face 
of Christ, and it's very dangerous. Well, you say, is it still wrong to go and bury my father and take care of No, the, the Lord gives precedent for taking care of our family. Genesis 50, verse 5, this is where Joseph begged Pharaoh to go and be able to bury his father, Jacob, in 1 Kings nineteen twenty. Elijah is calling Elisha to follow him. He wants to pass the prophetic mantle onto him. And Elisha said, let me, Elijah said, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and members of his household, he's denied the faith and is what? Worse than an unbeliever. We're supposed to provide. We're supposed to help. We're supposed to give. But ultimately, this is a matter of priority with Christ. Family or Christ? Who's higher? Christ. Always Christ. Always Christ. Don't walk away from Christ in the name of doing something even noble like burying your father. We want Christ first. and Let him handle the details of how we get to minister to our families. There are complicating matters that have happened in modern society where people have been shut out of the hospital room, unable to sit bedside. What are you doing there? You're giving your heart to Christ. You're trusting Christ. I know people have been unable to sit with their their aged parents or grandparents or even dying parents or loved ones. They're giving their hearts to Christ because Christ is first and he's there. We can't set terms and conditions with Christ, and his call is urgent. His statements here are a dividing line. And incidentally, if you are wholeheartedly committed to Christ, guess what? Your kids will see that, and they will follow in the wake of that. The greatest ministry that you can have to your kids, to your family, to your loved ones, is a wholehearted devotion to Christ. And let him work out complicated details. You see that with the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. And he goes home and his whole household is saved because of the faith of the jailer. They're all believing and being baptized. 1 Corinthians 7, 14, if you have have a believer in the home, they would have been unholy, but now, or unclean, but they're made holy because of the believer's influence in the house. 1 Peter 3, 1, a Husband who's unbelieving is won by a wife without a word. Deuteronomy 6, passing the fear of God through teaching the word of God everywhere. And the fear of God is passed down within the household, generation to generation. If you just love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you see that? By contrast, if you are duplicitous, if you are not fully committed to Christ, but you name the name of Christ, that harms your children. That gives them license to rebel. It cracks the door for them to say, well, he half believes, so I'll half believe. I'll quarter believe. I'll just put my toe in the pool and I won't all the way believe. And that's very damaging. You see that where the sins of the fathers are passed down from to second and third generations. Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 5 talk about that. You remember Hophni and Phinehas who were raised by Samuel. Samuel's as a incredible prophet and... Um, a priest was neglectful of his son, so Hophni and Phinehas were given over to temple prostitution and drunkenness. On the face, this request to go bury my father is reasonable, right? It's uh, even noble and respectable. But the immediate context is one where 
this disciple is called to choose. Probably much like being on the front lines of a, of a battle where you are commissioned into service by a branch in the military and you're there and what would seem normal and natural to come off at the battlefield and, and to help your parent who is dying or to grieve appropriately. At times when the war is hot, it would be wrong, it would be a wall to leave the front lines and go home and do what would be natural and normal in the course of everyday life. I think that's what this situation was. Jesus was calling out unbelief. What this disciple could be as a unbeliever or half-believer, not a true believer, and don't go back to a dead environment right now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Evaluate your own heart. You remember Uriah, the Hittite, who David ultimately had killed. Remember, he pulled him off the battlefield for a little while so that he would have relations with Bathsheba to cover his sin. And he was so noble as a warrior, as a soldier. He said, I'm not even going to go see my wife. I'm going to sleep out here. I'm not going to enjoy the king's food. I'm going to deny myself because my brothers are dying in battle. The war is raging and I need to be a part of that. What is Jesus saying really here? So we've looked at depth with what is being asked by this disciple. But then verse 22, and Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You know, for an unbeliever, death is the end. They have no concept of eternal life or eternity. When someone dies, it's always hard for everyone, but especially for an unbeliever who's hopeless, death is the end. They're dead inside as as they grieve the death of a loved one. There's nothing more. It's a dead society. It ramps up the stage of a funeral event where the funeral becomes everything because they're grieving so horribly without hope that all they can hang on to is this ceremony of death. And you see this in tribal animistic pagan cultures where death ceremonies are, have high elevation and are, they mean everything. Whereas for a believer who is alive spiritually, though we grieve, though death is hard and horrible and it's a great loss, we don't grieve without hope. And we understand that a believer who dies is still alive, that the body is just a shell. It's just a reminder of who that person was here, but now that person is in heaven. So we have hope, a dead person who's part of a death culture is dead inside and on the outside. One person put it this way, let the world that is spiritually dead take care of what is mundane. The dead is truly burying the dead. Jesus is saying, come out of that culture. Because if you don't come out of that culture, out of that mindset, if you don't truly believe and come, come to life inside, you could be someone who is never able to escape death. Navigating these things is is very difficult. Jesus is saying that the conditions are extreme in this moment. These statements are proverbial. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Hold everything with an open hand. As a scribe, you might be a master of tradition, a master of what you think the law means, but you need to let it all go and follow Christ. To this disciple... 
You might have all the rationale for why you need to leave this moment, why you need to walk away from Jesus, why you need to stall and postpone things, why you need to set terms and conditions on things. Jesus is saying, no, don't go to that dead mindset and that dead culture. Come to life and truly follow me. In Luke's gospel, Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Join the mission to go after souls. As Wearsby put it, preach the gospel and give life to the spiritually dead. And then do that rather than wait for your father to die and bury him. How does this harmonize with Christian joy? I mean, these are pretty hard statements, right? Give up your comfort, being willing to give it up and follow. Go on the mission field. Let the dead bury the dead. Are we just supposed to be sad Christians? Well, Christianity and these heavy statements and these heavy commitments to follow Jesus are always mingled with true joy because we get Jesus and we have eternity and we have hope and we are alive. But what does that look like? Well, I have to, you know, kind of frame it up in my own mind. So this is how I do it. I was recalling a friend of mine in junior high. I used to wrestle He was Chris Fussell, and uh, he was a small kid like I was. And by eighth grade, I, you know, I had two or three moves down, and I could just put them on him uh, and pin him in the first round every time. So I just kind of beat this kid up all year. Um, Super fun. Um, But, but his brother, his older brother, was a state champion wrestler, and he would kind of look over his shoulder at me, and uh, he was my hero, Jonathan Fussell. He was awesome. He never lost. He was the total package, uh, awesome wrestler. And one day I, I Google searched him to see how he turned out. I knew he went to college. I followed him in college wrestling. And uh, he had become an elite um, Navy SEAL, a tactical specialist, a sniper, a weapon specialist, um, decorated war hero. He was part of SEAL Team 4. So a pretty heavy guy, um, heavy duty guy with a lot of gravity uh, in an article that he um, that was done on him, he was interviewed by Old Dominion University where he wrestled, and they were interviewing him as he became a SEAL. And he said, why did you do it? How did you do it? He said, well, becoming a SEAL is simply this. It's putting yourself in the most miserable of circumstances that you could imagine and loving every minute of it. It's Christianity to me. It's, it's full on. It's where you go full on for God, for Christ. And it's either he's real, it's all real, and he's saying, follow me, or it's not real at all. And it's all real. It's all true. It's all here in the Bible. Following Christ. That's why he raises, Jesus raises the bar to shock us into this kind of full commitment. Don Carson said, if the scribe was too quick to make a promise, then the disciple, this disciple was too slow to perform. J.C. Ryle said this, and I love this statement. The saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of the warnings and the invitations. Don't miss the point. Follow Jesus at all costs. Consider the cost, where you are in your own faith. Think about it. Examine yourself. And then just... I'm going to follow you no matter where you go, where you call me to go, and how I'm going to follow. I'll I'll do it. I'll give you my life. I'll give you my all. 
and I'll live and preach the kingdom of God.